Let us pray together. Dear God, we thank you for the way that your Holy Spirit comes upon us. And wherever your Holy Spirit is at work, you are bringing about a new thing. And when we notice these new things, we always have a new song to sing in praise to you. So come, Holy Spirit, bring us new love, new creativity, new forgiveness, new reconciliation with everyone around us. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. During these uh, Sundays in Easter, I found myself especially fascinated to see the way that the followers of Jesus slowly begin to take in all the implications of God's raising Jesus from the dead. The fascinating thing is that it doesn't just happen in a heartbeat. It doesn't happen in one day or one week or one month. It happens over first one year and then many years. But slowly they begin to realize that in raising Jesus from the dead, God has vindicated Jesus' love for those at the margins. Vindicated His non-violent life. Vindicated His cross and the forgiveness that He extended to all of us from it. Slowly they begin to realize that God has overcome and defeated all the powers of evil and sin and death. And slowly, slowly they begin to realize that God's reconciling love is the supreme power of the universe. And that nothing in all of creation can ever separate us from that love. And then, oh so slowly, oh so painfully, with much prodding from the Holy Spirit, they begin to realize that nothing will ever be able to separate the love of God from everyone else in the world. And especially those that they have grown up learning to hate, to despise, and to revile. So in Christ, they come to realize that God has broken down every single wall of hostility that separates people groups from one another. And in these early days of the church, we see God leading Peter and others on a journey of profound transformation and conversion. So that they, in turn, can lead the church into this brand new social reality. A church of reconciled enemies, transcending all the divisions in their world. 
And God's breakthrough to Peter happens one day when he's visiting the port city of Joppa. And if you want to follow along, you can open your Bible to Acts 10 if you find that helpful. Our story opens just before lunch when Peter, with his stomach growling, goes up on a roof to commune with God in prayer and falls into a meditative trance. Now, let me just say from my own personal experience, praying while you're hungry or hangry is not highly recommended. But you know, Peter, Peter does it in Peter's way. So here we are. In verse 13, the heavens suddenly open. And God gives Peter a vision of being able to eat every unclean four-legged animal and two-legged animal forbidden in the Hebrew scriptures. Pigs, camels, badgers, buzzards, ostriches, and crocodiles. Bon appetit, Peter. Bon appetit. Now, Peter must think that his growling stomach is making him hallucinate. Because God is telling him to disobey Scripture. Peter is being able, is being told to cross a dietary boundary that has been shaping and protecting his people's God-given identity for centuries. And so, in verse 14, he responds, No way, Lord, I'm never going to do that. Quoting scripture, probably Leviticus 11, Peter says that he's never eaten anything profane or unclean. And he never will. So notice the delicious irony here, dear friends. Peter, we find here in this story, quoting scripture, to God. Something else is going on here. How many times does Peter, or does God tell Peter to go eat? Not just once, not just twice, but three times, right? Hmm, that's interesting. Where else has this happened in Peter's life before? Well, there's his threefold denial of Jesus, remember, in the courtyard. And later, by the Sea of Galilee, there's Jesus' commissioning him three times to go and feed his sheep. So, up on that roof, after being told three times to go eat, Peter is now all ears. And it's exactly now that the representatives of Cornelius, all Gentile outsiders, by the way, arrive at Peter's door and invite him to come up two days' journey up to Caesarea to Cornelius. God is now guiding Peter, a Jewish insider, to cross yet another border. Not just a dietary one now, but a great wall of hostility that divides Jews from Gentiles. 
As Peter says a little bit later in verse 28, this wall of hostility until now has made it completely and absolutely unacceptable ever for a Jew to associate with a Gentile. And to make matters worse for Peter... Cornelius isn't just your run-of-the-mill, unclean Gentile. He's an officer in Rome's military headquarters in Caesarea. He's a hated empire or a hated enemy in the empire that has conquered Jerusalem and polluted their land with pagan practices. Worst of all, he belongs to the regime that's just recently killed Jesus, his beloved teacher. And so we can only imagine the inner turmoil that Peter feels as he makes that two-day journey, that walk up to Caesarea. He must be asking along the way, what in God's name am I doing? And when he gets there, Peter finds Cornelius eagerly awaiting him with all of his friends and his family. must have been quite a sight. In verse 33, Cornelius then says to Peter, We're here to listen to all that the Lord has commanded you to say. I mean, that is a preacher's dream and fantasy. (laughs) No one's ever said that to me. (laughs) Samantha, Todd, we want to hear all that the Lord has commanded you to say to us today. And Peter now preaches a very edgy sermon about Jesus to these Romans. Verse 36, how Jesus came preaching the peace that only comes from God, not from any Roman emperor. How Jesus is the Lord of all, not Caesar. How they, read you Romans, killed him. How God raised him up on the third day, triumphing over the Roman Empire and every evil power. And in verse 43, how the prophets in the Hebrew Bible have been testifying and getting the world ready for this Jesus event. Jesus is the culmination of God's salvation story. He's God's living word who has radically, has come to radically re-clarify who God is and how God wants us to live and love in the world. And everyone who follows him will receive forgiveness through his name. And it must be here that Peter hopes that by preaching this edgy sermon to these Gentiles, that they will be completely and utterly filled with rage. And that they'll send him packing home to Joppa. But what do they do instead? They are filled with the Holy Spirit, not with rage, 
and they start joyfully speaking in tongues and praising God. Not what he hoped, not what he expected. And in our story, I want us to be sure, be sure, be sure to notice how it mentions four times that Cornelius and Peter are people with a deep prayer life with God. Verses 2, verse 9, verse 30, and verse 31. And friends, as it's often said, the most important fruit of our prayer life with God often comes not during our meditation and communion time with God, but later on in our daily lives. The fruit of this communion comes when we face an old, old familiar situation and suddenly surprising ourselves we respond in a brand new, loving, and creative way. Where did that come from? We've experienced that, haven't we? What's come over me? (laughs) The life of God has come over us. The mind of Christ is becoming ours through these daily times of prayer. Jesus' ways are becoming our ways. Just ask Peter. And so Peter and his Jewish friends now flow with God. They baptize all these Gentile outsiders right then and there. No eight-week catechism class for them. And to top it off, in verse 48 they do what no good Jew would ever, ever do. They say yes to Cornelius' invitation to stay in his unclean home for several more days. Friends, what we have here is not only the story of God's conversion of Cornelius, but also the story of God's conversion of Peter. The Holy Spirit is guiding him to get out of the way so that God's love can flow through him to these Gentiles just as it has already flowed into his own life. And it's almost impossible to overstate what a huge and demanding ask this is from God to Peter. It requires that Peter and the early church revise their theology, their code of ethics, their social practices. It means setting aside a whole lifetime of ingrained revulsion and superiority and hostility toward Gentile outsiders. It means also setting aside key parts of the Bible. The parts about circumcision and food and ethnic purity. 
But it's friends, it's because they set all these things aside. It's because they all flowed with God that all of us Gentiles are part of God's family here today. Amen? By God's design, by God's design, the church of Jesus Christ begins with this miraculous reconciliation and many others. By God's design, the church is a new and surprising community, attractive community of reconciled enemies. And dear friends, aren't we in a similar time ourselves? A time when the Holy Spirit is leading us as well to set aside a whole lifetime of ingrained revulsion and superiority and hostility toward, well, fill in your own blank. Who is it? in your life. Aren't we in a time when the Holy Spirit is leading us in brand new ways to set down, to set down, bring down more walls of hostility that are dividing us from one another as human beings? Every Christian, the world around, is called to search our hearts and to repent of the prejudice and the hatred that we find within. But at this time, I believe that no one needs to do this inner work more than those of us who are white and male and straight. Because for centuries, we've been lording it over everyone else. Anyone want to say amen? Oh, come on. I guess you don't feel that strongly about this. <laughs> and we've even come to feel entitled to all of our privileges and to cling to them very tightly. So that when others are now experiencing these same opportunities that we've had all along, it's easy for us to quickly cry foul and to start feeling oppressed ourselves. But we're not. Not receiving preferential treatment anymore is not discrimination. It's called equality. And for those of us who are white and male and straight, that's painful. I won't ask for an amen from all of you who have experienced that. Now, let me be very clear about something here this morning. This is not about the church becoming politically correct. This is about our becoming kingdom people 
who are trying to live now, here, according to the way they will be forever in eternity in God's future. Because in God's eternity, there ain't going to be no white supremacy. And there isn't going to be any male domination. So let us flow with God now and be at the forefront of dismantling both of these. And if you're white and male and straight like me, or if you're just one of these, or if you're two of these, let us all welcome and rejoice in the raising up of all those who were once regarded as without value, but are in fact eternally precious to God. And let us celebrate a church that is slowly, perhaps too slowly, beginning to look a little bit more like the kingdom of God, like the kingdom of God. God's new humanity. God's church of reconciled peoples held together in Christ and transcending every division in our world. May it be so. Amen.